morning. Excited to be preaching today. That's what it says here in my notes. Um, <laughs> for those of you uh, who don't know me, my name is James. I'm on staff here at Crosspoint along with uh, Jamie and Jason. I'm the one without the beard. Um, normally you see me doing what Hannah Beth was doing this morning, uh, leading us in a time uh, of worship. And uh, thank you to you guys for doing that because that was awesome. It's rare that I get to be um, out there with you all worshiping and um, and I can't help but crying every time I'm doing it. So, um, so thank you for that. Uh, I am excited, though, to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, what took you guys so long? Uh, for the past two months, we've been in a series called Advancing in Joy, uh, working through the book of Philippians and hopefully allowing it to work in us and through us in the process. And we've now come to the end of Paul's letter, sadly, which concludes very much the way it began. And I'm just going to get right into it, if that's all right with you guys. So um, if you would, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We will be looking at verses 10 through 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one in the seats in front of you. Uh, we won't have the verses on the back of the screen this morning, so definitely recommend opening that. And again, if you don't have a Bible at home, why don't you take that with you? It's our gift to you uh, from the church. So um, we're going to read to the passage in its entirety to give you guys kind of a broad overview of where we're going this morning, and then we'll go back and look at it in more depth. Um, all right, so beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that reminder this morning uh, that you, Jesus, are seated on your throne, um, or that we come to you, um, or that you are Lord of all. God, I pray that, uh, or that you would be with us this morning, Lord, uh, that your word would penetrate our hearts. Um, God, I thank you for this letter to the Philippians that Paul penned, um, Lord, that, uh, that we would continue to advance in joy that he's talking about, that we would... Um, that we would be able to find, find our contentment in you, Father, that we would stop pursuing those things that cannot satisfy and will not satisfy, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this gathering of the church body, Father. May you unite us in your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you haven't already, I highly recommend going back and reading through the entire book of Philippians uh, to put it all into proper context. 
For the sake of time and to allow for a thorough exegesis of a passage, we break things down over several weeks, sometimes several months in this case, to adequately explore the riches of God's word. But sometimes in dissecting a book in that way, you can miss out on some of the big picture stuff, the way Paul connects ideas and the overall flow of this letter, especially if you miss a week or two. Um, going back and reading it, I, uh, you start to notice some of these connections. For instance, if you look back at the introduction to this letter in chapter 1, you'll notice similar expressions of gratitude from Paul to the church in Philippi. Going back to that verse, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he returns to these same ideas here. We see this partnering in the gospel of a profound friendship centered around Jesus, of running this race not in isolation but as one united body. In fact, the whole book of Philippians, as I was reading it, seemed to, seemed to feel like a, a relay race or like the Indy 500, and each section like a pit stop along the way for the purpose of refueling and refocusing us on the prize. I like to envision uh, Paul, this kind of tough-as-nails boxing uh, instructor or something, kind of like Burgess Meredith's character in Rocky, and, uh, and we're sitting there in a corner, and he's slapping us around and squirting water in our mouths and using one of those... Those weird things that they use on boxers to like smooth out their faces in between rounds, you know what I'm talking about? Um, and he's like, he's spurring us on, he's saying, look at Jesus, um, look straight ahead and don't look back, don't fight as one punching the air, dwell on whatever is pure and lovely, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ over and over again and run towards him with all our might. And now we've reached the last pit stop, so to speak, at least as far as this letter goes. And even in his farewell, Paul has some wonderful wisdom to impart. Going back to verse 10, it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Again, we see this throughout the book of Philippians. Paul finds a reason to rejoice despite his circumstances. This time Paul is rejoicing in the fact that this church in Philippi is bearing fruit as demonstrated by this generous offering they've given him through Epaphroditus. It doesn't say exactly what this gift is, but it is clear that they've renewed their support in some financial sense. As to why there was a lapse in support, this is unclear as well. Perhaps they lacked the means, or perhaps Paul was inaccessible. Whatever the case, Paul notes that the Philippians never stopped caring for him, even if they were unable to financially support him, and for that he is grateful. So more on that in a little bit. We'll come back to that, that gratitude piece. Um, but before that, Paul almost interrupts his train of thought here. Being the calculated communicator that he is, he wants to make sure that his words are not misconstrued. And so he says, not, in verse 11, that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul wants to make it clear that the source of his joy is not in the gift itself, although he is grateful. But going back to the verse we looked at earlier in the series, verse uh, 121 in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if to live is anything other than Christ, then to die is just the negation of that thing. This is important because if Paul's source of joy is in the external financial support from the Philippians, then the absence of that support leads to what? Despair? Hurt feelings, loss of relationships, isolation, loss of limbs, 
not really loss of limbs, that's probably taking it too far, but you get the idea. The absence of this thing, whatever it is, just results in, in the end of that, at the very least, disappointment. Um, there's a book by Jeremiah Burroughs called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I haven't read it, uh, but I love the title, <laughs> which makes me sound very literate, I understand. I, I just get things for the titles, and I don't actually read them. Um, but I like the word picture that it paints because it brings to mind uh, the parable that Jesus tells comparing the kingdom of heaven to a merchant in search of fine pearls who, in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I'd like to say that discontentment is the product of our current culture in which we face a myriad of options that leave us dizzy and dissatisfied and aimlessly searching for fulfillment. You need only turn on Netflix and scroll through a thousand movie and TV show options, comedy or drama, classic or contemporary, He-Man or She-Ra, they're both on there now, <laughs> and they're both weirder than I remember. <laughs> and in the hour and a half it takes me to settle on something, I could have already finished a movie, right? But I don't think this is just an issue among millennials, of which I am one. People have always struggled to find the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about. I like this poem from Edgar Allan Poe, uh, a man who made a living out of being discontented. He writes this, quote, And as for times, although tis said by many, the good old times were far the worst of any, of which sound doctrine I believe each tittle, that is, a small amount, yet still I think these worse than them a little. Um, of a depressing picture he's painting, but this idea that uh, you know, even back then people were talking about the good old days, this thing in the past that was better than what it is now, and he's basically saying, it was horrible then, and if it's even possible, it's even more horrible now. And so um, that's the picture that he paints. And there's some, some truth to that. Um, Woody Allen explains this same idea in a film that I watched recently called Midnight in Paris. It centers around uh, the main character played by Owen Wilson, uh, who's visiting Paris with his fiance, And he's walking the streets one night. Uh, and in a bit of magical realism, gets into this car, which transports him back to 1920s Paris. And suddenly he's mingling with all these great uh, expatriate artists, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and, and Salvador Dali. And, uh, and this is a dream come true to him, because this is, this is the era he wants to be alive. He's in this jazz music and this excitement and all these, these great minds of the era. And he's, he's telling this girl, man, this is, this is the best. Like, you're so lucky to be here. And she's like, what are you talking about? This is... This is horrible. It was all about the 1890s. That's where it's at. And so they're walking around, and again, as they turn a street corner, they're transported back into the 1890s suddenly with horse-drawn carriages, and they, they go and visit the Moulin Rouge, and, and there they mingle with some of the great minds of that day, uh, Toulouse-Lautrec and um, Gauguin and, and other French names that I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. And so they're talking to them, and this girl's like, man, you, you guys are so lucky to be in the 1890s. This is where it's at. And they're like, no, this is horrible. It was all about the Renaissance. The Renaissance is where it was at. And, uh, and I wonder if Woody Allen and Edgar Allan Poe would have kept following that trail of discontentment if they would have eventually found their way back to Genesis 3, which is, now that I'm thinking about it, a great idea for a movie. Woody Allen, <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, back in time, meet Adam and Eve form a successful rock group. It's a, it almost writes itself. Um, anyway, all this discontentment can be traced back to that moment in history, right? The first man and the first woman in a flush garden paradise with everything you could ever want to eat, and they walk and talk with God, and everything is perfect, and then, then they disobey God. They eat of the tree, which God forbids them to eat. 
tempted by Satan, who tells them that they'll be like God if they eat this forbidden fruit. But he's a liar. And the consequences are death and banishment, separation from the Creator, and a whole new world of options to sort through as we seek wholeness once more. I wonder if that new job would make me happier, or that house, or that girl, or better behaved kids, or go fill in the blank with the fallen earth, right? Daniel Yanklovich, hope I'm saying that name correctly, um, he sums it up quite well, thanks to Nathan for bringing this quote to my attention. Here he describes what he calls the and culture. He says, quote, if you feel it is imperative to fill all your needs, and if these needs are contradictory or in conflict with those of others, or simply unfillable, then frustration inevitably follows. To us, self-fulfillment means having a career and marriage and children and sexual freedom and autonomy and being liberal and having money and choosing nonconformity and insisting on social justice and enjoying city life and country living and simplicity and graciousness and reading and good friends and on and on. The individual is not truly fulfilled by becoming ever more autonomous. autonomous. Indeed, to move too far in this direction is to risk psychosis, the ultimate form of autonomy. The injunction, notice this now please, the injunction that to find oneself, one must lose oneself, contains the truth any seeker of self-fulfillment needs to grasp. Of course, he's alluding to Jesus' words there. That sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And yet I could totally relate to it. It's so easy to get caught up into that and culture. Last year, my wife and I, my family, moved into this Lovely little brick home in Peachtree City, completely redone inside, new everything. A number of you have seen it. And we were grateful and ecstatic beyond words to be leaving the little two-bedroom, rat-infested, no joke, apartment. There was one rat in particular. Can I tell this story, Bees? Okay. <laughs> Come and see me afterwards. and we'll, yeah. But it, it really does make me look like a hero, protecting my family from this rat. And... Uh, it was an answer to prayer because that night before I killed it, I was praying with the boys. Real quick, just a story. Because I, I, was, I was praying with the boys and, uh, you know, I'm praying with them like I always do. And, and in California, we probably have rats. I just, I don't see them. Like we've, we've cut down all the trees and paved over everything, thus managing to destroy any wildlife in the process. It's very progressive out there. And so I'm praying with them and I'm like... Uh, like, you know, God, I, just, I say the same things I always say, Lord, help them get the rest, Lord, we love you, and please, God, you know, help me kill that rat, God, just help me, I keep saying it, and Miles is like, Dad, like, are you, you all right, I thought he was freaking out, but, uh, but I did, and so, <laughs> but you can imagine our joy to be moving out of that place uh, into this beautiful new home, courtesy of Joe Runnels, I don't know if he's here today, um, it's gorgeous, and then, um, and then we're in there, and then my heart does that thing it does, that restless dance that begins when I believe I'm missing out on something, that there is something else that I need, and it speaks to me with this, this hunger that's insatiable. It says, you have this new house, but now your furniture is looking a little dingy, and you have four bedrooms now, which is nice and all, but wouldn't it be cool if you had a fifth bedroom you could move your stuff into, and you have your little recording studio set up, and no one bothers you in there? And it'd be cool to have a porch, too. And then suddenly I start noticing all these things that, that maybe aren't quite up to snuff. Scuffs on the floor. Marks on the walls because I have boys. 
And I know that I could eat any fruit here, but the one I really want is the one that I can't have, right? When asked by a reporter how much money is enough, billionaire of old John D. Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. Who can save us from this, this inexhaustible pursuit, this fickle and ungrateful heart that wanders and forgets? I mean this in all earnestness. Thank God for Jesus Christ, right? That I don't have to live this selfish existence consumed by greed and driven by discontentment. I can live my life for another. That old man has died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the secret that Paul is talking about here in verse 12. It is Christ that I long for, and I could do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what Paul has learned. And notice that he says learned each time. He learned to be content. This is not something that was immediately transferred to him upon his conversion. In fact, if you look at Paul's history, this learned contentment was anything but easy for him. Here was a man who was imprisoned, is currently imprisoned as he's writing this, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. But on the other side, Paul can say, Jesus is enough. I don't know about you, I, I want that. I'm thankful for God's grace and patience with me while I struggle to learn these things. I could go on and on and fill a whole sermon just talking about contentment in Christ, but we have more to get to, and this next part is really good too, so I'm going to jump into verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul returns now to this previous train of thought before he cut himself off. And he resumes thanking the Philippians for their long-standing partnership with him in the gospel, tracing back through their history with one another and reminiscing fondly of this church that has always been there for him since the beginning. Paul describes some of this early period of their partnership uh, in 2 Corinthians as well, looking at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 8. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. The church was known for its sacrificial giving and generosity, despite being poor. And they continue in that tradition, which blesses Paul. After all these years, here's a church who is still running with him towards Jesus. I really love the way this church, that is Crosspoint Peachtree City, talks about partnership. Most churches use the word membership, and I've been at churches that use that word. It's not anything wrong with it, but I prefer the word partnership, but it seems to connote something more than just attendance, more than just showing up here. It's kind of a, a co-laboring with one another. We don't go to church, we are the church. We gather on Sunday morning and we worship the Lord together through songs and through our tithes and offerings. We share each other's troubles, as Paul puts it, during the week as we gather for community groups, being vulnerable and praying for one another. We serve alongside one another on Sunday and out in the community, and we share the gospel with that same community because they long to know Jesus. That's what partnership is. That's what, that's what co-laboring looks like. And that's what Paul is driving at here. My wife and I moved here from California, mentioned about four years ago now, and we joined this church soon after that when she was about six months old. Not my wife, the church was six months old. Um, we're absolutely convinced that God called us to come out here. And I, I still am convinced, but it was a tough 
transition for us, leaving behind everything we knew. We were born and raised there, and uh, leaving behind family and friends, and, uh, and our church especially, uh, who walked with us through some of these more difficult times in our life. And we had a lot of questions about moving, mainly about what church we would be called to. And the whole process of getting to know people again is time-consuming, and it's messy. But God led us here, and we stayed, despite um, the pastor who planted it, trying to get us to leave on three separate occasions. Uh, I love Josiah Potter, who planted this church. Um, he didn't want us to leave because he didn't like us or anything. We were traveling from a, a distance, and he was trying to plug us into somewhere a little bit closer. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that we didn't listen to him uh, because it has been a sweet partnership with you all. Whenever I look back on the history, our history with Crosspoint, I always get a, a little emotional at the risk of crying in front of everyone. I wanted to publicly express in the way that Paul is to the church in Philippians my gratitude for the way that this church has loved and served my family and has become family in the process. Initially, I thought I might thank people individually the way Jason did in his sermon a few weeks back. And as I was writing down these names, I realized I was writing literally just about everyone that I can see here before me. And it seemed like that would take a really long time. So I decided to uh, just do it collectively. So on behalf of myself and my entire family, to everyone who has supported us financially or fed us or took us into their home uh, when our apartment flooded, or anyone who has served alongside me in the band, including the back of the house, that you guys show up tirelessly on Thursday and uh, fly in and get in here uh, just in time to do practice and, um, and show up early on Sunday morning to lead us into worship. And for those of you who contributed towards getting the church golf cart fixed so we could have another car while I commuted, and even the house that we live in is a direct result of God providing through the people in this church. Um, let me just say for the record that we are blessed by your kindness and your sacrifice towards us. And if it were up to me to express in words how thankful we are for this church, I would be at a loss, which is why I love what Paul has to say next. Um, it's not just about the gift. He says it again, not that I seek the gift, in verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, it's not about the gift. Paul is not interested in financial gain, but rather, and this is the cool part, he's trying to orient us to this wacky, upside-down kingdom. Paul is excited that the Philippians are bearing fruit, that they are acting like Christians, and one of the marks of Christian living is giving sacrificially. This description that Paul uses of a fragrant offering brings to mind Old Testament sacrifices. At this church, when we receive the offering, coming out of a time of worship through song. We call the ushers forward by saying, we're going to continue our time in worship through our offering. Very deliberate about saying it. Worship is not just singing. It's a huge part of it and a part of it that I love. But worship is so much more, right? In fact, it's everything we do. In everything we do, we have to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. 
Giving generously of our time, talent, and treasure pleases God. And Paul reminds us here that our contributions on earth have eternal significance to God's kingdom. And out of those riches, there is the promise that God will provide for our every need. What a great, what a great promise. One of the great benefits of being on staff here is that I get to see firsthand the generosity of this body. Just last year, we were a church on support, receiving external fundings to make ends meet. And at the end of last year, that support ran out. So we were trusting God to provide through you all um, necessary money we needed to, to continue to function. And even with a budget increase, God has met our needs, needs every month and in most cases far exceeded that. It's a testament of God's provision and your generous hearts. This is a generous church, and I'm excited to see how God continues to grow and multiply our giving in that area. As Paul says, to our credit, for his glory and our good. Moving on to Paul's final words to the Philippians, he closes in very much the same way he began with this greeting to all the saints, making a nice little bookend for this letter. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Paul reiterates again this call for solidarity and greeting every saint. You get the picture of this brotherhood, this people that's called apart for the cause of Christ, this battalion linking arms for the sake of the gospel, a people that transcend cultural differences or ethnic backgrounds or class distinctions or age barriers. All of these things are secondary to following Christ. And then he throws in this little bit in verse 22 about Caesar's household. The people in Rome are being transformed by Christ, that Rome cannot stand against the gospel going forth. This must have been a huge encouragement to the Philippians to see the gospel continuing to go forward. That their effort and their sacrifices have not been in vain, but they are in fact flooding a dark world with his marvelous light. And lastly, Paul reminds us in this final verse, which is almost identical to Philippians 1-2, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, perfecting us, and that he will see us to completion. Amen. In a little bit, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take the bread representing Christ's broken body and dip it in the cup representing his blood which he shed for us on the cross. An act of perfect love and obedience, he generously offered himself up for me and you. And if you're a Christian, maybe take this time to reflect and to wrestle with God's word. Are you struggling with contentment? If you're not worshiping God with your time, talent, and treasure, then what are you worshiping? On whose altar are you burning what God has generously given you? Are you looking to other things, success, career, money, people, for a sense of peace and significance? If yes, then know that the God of mercy and grace is with you in that as well. That he is calling you to shed everything that is slowing you down, everything that encumbers and keeps you from fixing your eyes on him, and running the race fully and freely towards Jesus. I love the lyrics to this song we sang a couple weeks ago called Fix My Eyes. Um, this is a song that uh, 
Brooklyn Autry uh, said was the, the loveliest thing to ever enter her ear holes. Those were her exact <laughs> words, I think. Um, about the nicest thing I've ever heard. Um, it says, as I fight to follow, you're my righteous guide, and you train me to delight in all that's holy. Heal my broken body, cure my crooked stride, throw off every weight and sin that, sing, that clings so closely. I will run the race, enduring for your glory. For those of you on the sidelines, I invite you to come and join this race. Let us run together, encouraging one another in the gospel. I'd say we need you, but more than that, you need to. God is calling you to. If you're not a Christian, then I pray that today would be the day that changes, that you would join the race with us, drop the exhausting and fruitless pursuit of things that cannot and will not satisfy, and come and follow Jesus.